Okay, so as long as it works, we'll use it. It's good to be back with you. I've been away for two weeks, one of which was planned. The other was uh, sort of all of a sudden last week when my wife and I got sick. The number one question this morning is, are you feeling better? Which is kind of like, how close do I get to you today? So I'm good, no worries. Uh, uh, so but I'm glad to be here and glad that you're here. And uh, I just want to turn your attention to this uh, passage of Scripture, which is so important and powerful for us. And in my view, somewhat no, not somewhat, significantly misunderstood. But before I get to the heart of the passage, let me make a comment that my Thursday morning Bible study explicitly warned me not to make. So if this distracts you in some way, sends you in a direction other than the sermon, don't blame them, blame me. I decided to do it anyway. One of the phrases in this text is, do not cast your or throw your pearls before pigs, or more familiar in the King James, do not cast your pearls before swine. I was actually a little bit surprised and amused to find out that the Greek word for pearls is, are you ready for this? Margaritas. Do not cast your margaritas before pigs. Now, that doesn't mean that margaritas were around at the time of Jesus. Here's how that developed. The word margarita in Greek actually does mean pearl. And a number of generations later, when particularly people in the Spanish or Mexican heritage uh, brought a little girl into the world, they thought Marguerite or Margaret was a wonderful name for a little girl. And so this comes to us out of that tradition and in the, in the early, late 19th century and early 20th century, during the Prohibition era of the United States, when people were not allowed to legally buy or manufacture alcoholic beverages in this country, they would go down across the border to Mexico where somebody had thought a really cool name for a drink would be something that was so precious that we, let's just name it after Margaret. So ironically, what happens is people are leaving the United States because they're not allowed to drink, and they go down there and they taste this drink, and margaritas have since become the most well-known tequila cocktail in the world. So I guess in that sense, the prohibition kind of worked against them a little bit. But here's the reason I think all of that is significant. I think we find in this text a precious pearl of Jesus' teaching, a tasty beverage, a wonderful cocktail that we really need to walk out of here thinking more deeply than we've thought about. And it's so precious and holy that Jesus says, the teaching that I'm going to give you is not just for anyone. Be careful where you use this teaching, this pearl of my truth. So with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, because I'm going to begin here uh, and just walk you through these six verses with a few comments about what Jesus actually said. The words, do not judge, are oft quoted and oft misunderstood, abused actually in many different ways. So what did Jesus actually say when he was saying, do not judge? The first uh, challenge that we have in verse 1 is with the meaning of the word judge. 
Because the word judge has a wide array of meanings, both in English and in Greek. So think about other examples. I'm going to give you examples of what are called contronyms. It's a new word to me. It means that a word and its antonym are spelled the same and pronounced the same. For example, the word bolt. It can either mean to run away and separate yourself from someone, or it can mean to fasten two things together. Two opposite meanings, same word. The word cleave can either mean to join together or to split apart. The word finished can either mean completed or destroyed. So the word judge is kind of like that. It's a contronym, at least in some of its uses. Even in the Bible, we seem to read mixed messages about the word judge. So this same Jesus who says, do not judge, in Matthew 7, 1, says, judge correctly, in John 7. The Apostle Paul says, stop passing judgment on one another. In Romans and in 1 Corinthians, the same Apostle says, to the church, you are to judge those inside the church. So the Bible from cover to cover presumes that God is a judge. That's not a bad thing. And it also presumes that judges like Judge Wes Barkley are not only doing their job, but they are actually called by God, anointed by God to do their work of keeping order in society. So the root idea behind the word judge is to separate, to make a distinction. And positively, the word can mean to discern or govern or even to acquit, but negatively it can mean to condemn or criticize or reject. And so since Jesus says here, do not judge, it's obviously one of the negative meanings that he has in mind, but which one? I'll come back to that. Someone more subtle when Jesus says do not judge is that in the Greek text, The verb is in the present tense, which means that Jesus is saying, I'm talking about continuous action here. So whatever Jesus means by not judging, he's he's really not even saying don't ever do it. He's saying don't continually do this. Don't make it your pattern, your habit, your way of life. Do not keep judging. We gain further insight into what Jesus means in the rest of that sentence in the following verses when he tells you why not to keep judging. Do not keep judging so that you may not be judged. So Jesus is tapping somewhat into a self-serving motive here. And in case you missed the point, he repeats it in the next verse with a couple of more phrases. He says, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the way he says this leads me to believe that he's not talking about the judgment of God. He's not saying don't keep judging because God will judge you. Some commentators differ with that. You may differ. But in my view, what he's saying is in your relationships with people, if you're always judging them, you're going to get it back. So you have a hard time with a theology that would, said, that, that would say like whatever degree you judge people, God's keeping score. And when you get to the great judgment, he's going to add up all the times that you judge people and the ways in which you judge them and the extent to which you judge them, and he's going to give it back to you. Like, I have a little bit of a difficult time with that theology. So I think what Jesus is saying is, in your relationships with people, the way you judge them, they probably will give it right back to you. And then verses 3 to 5 present a very well-known, even graphic sort of word picture it's, it's designed to be funny. It's almost cartoonish 
when Jesus says, if you're looking closely to pick out a tiny little speck out of somebody else's eye, how are you going to see it when you've got a plank coming out of yours? You've got a two by eight coming out of your eye. Like, how can you even see to pluck out the speck from their eye? And Jesus says, you're a hypocrite if you do that. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll have better vision, and this is important, so that you then can remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice that Jesus is not saying it's wrong to address a behavior in someone else's life that you think is destroying them. He's just saying before you do that, make sure that you remove the plank from your own eye. And then he comes to verse 6, which almost sounds contradictory here, and at least odd. And this is when he says, Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. Why? Because if you do, they may trample them under, your, under feet, and the dogs, that is the pigs may trample them, and the dogs may turn and tear you to pieces. Now, not only do the terms dogs and pigs seem kind of offensive, like you're insulting someone, like you're judging them by calling them a dog or a pig. Some would even say these are racist implications. This verse just seems at first totally out of place. But it's important to me to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. And some people say, well, Matthew collected some sayings put together in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to argue that point. But even if that's true, give Matthew the sermon on the, uh, Matthew the benefit of the doubt. And remember that they're not dumb. They're not stupid. They know what they just said about do not judge. And they followed that with this phrase, this verse. Don't give your, uh, don't give your holy things to dogs and don't give your pearls to pigs. So how do we understand this in its context? Well, first of all, you have to remember that they're not thinking of dogs and pigs the way that you do, all right? The language is strong, but it's figurative. Don't think of your precious little Daisy or Bruno who sleeps with you on your bed and who does all sorts of neat tricks in the backyard, who snuggles up to you on the couch and watches TV, And don't even think of pot-belly pigs, or for that matter, don't even think of the pigs that you eat. Because for a Jew, in the first century, both dogs and pigs were unclean animals. They didn't adopt them, they didn't eat them, they didn't breed them, they didn't even touch them if they could avoid it. So Jesus' initial audience would have understood these are unclean animals. And what he's saying here is don't give things that are sacred or precious to those on whom they would be wasted because they are not sacred or holy or they will be misused and it might even come back to bite you. So actually, verse 6 is perfect when you look at that in its context. The command, do not keep judging, is easily misunderstood. Uh, When you try to confront someone, when you uh, share with them what you believe is to be uh, something that they need to correct in their lives, when you try to remove a speck from their eye, that's a holy act. And you better be real careful about where you try to do it, because if you just do that with anyone because you felt like correcting their fault, then you're taking something that's very holy and precious, this act of accountability that comes out of deep relationship, and you're throwing it to pigs and they will trample it or to dogs and they will turn and bite you. So be careful where and how you use this precious holy gift of confronting others about their sin. So let me summarize what I think Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. 
because it's commonly understood as saying, oh, don't ever say anything negative about someone else's behavior. And by the way, what's this thing about dogs and pigs? Instead, let me give you uh, three basic uh, points that Jesus is saying. He's giving you three ways to examine yourself. Because this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount is really about turning the searchlight of God's Word in on your own life. So he's raising the issue of sometimes there are moments when you're going to need to confront someone else within the community about a sin. That's his whole point. He says, I want you to be ready to take the speck out of someone else's eye. But before you do that, I want you to examine yourself in three ways. Number one, examine your pattern. Are you the kind of person that always needs to be judging? Don't keep judging. Do you never correct? That's not what he's saying. He's saying just don't make this your pattern. So examine your pattern. Am I a negative, critical person who always sees the worst in others? Don't keep judging, Jesus says. Second, examine your hypocrisy. Where am I trying to point out something in someone else's life that I may be doing the same thing or something worse or something parallel? It's never going to be effective to confront someone else about their sin if I haven't dealt with my own. So examine your pattern, examine your hypocrisy, and third, examine your motive. So if you're just targeting people because they're doing whatever wrong, maybe you're really doing it because it's not so much about them as it is about you, and you need to feel better than they are, and you need to feel holier than they are, and you need to point out the ways in which their behavior is wrong, and it's really about you. So when Jesus says, this is a holy thing, this is a sacred thing, this is a pearl, to confront someone else about something that's wrong in their lives? Don't just give that to anyone. Be careful that it's in the context and examine your motive to make sure you're doing this in the right way, the right time, for the right reason. So that's my interpretation of what Matthew 7 says, 1 through 6. Not everybody agrees. But now let me make a few more comments about it. Number one, this is impossible to do. Nobody can do this right all the time. You're always going to mess up in one way or the other when you try to do this. Now, I said a couple weeks ago, uh, the last time I was in the pulpit about the Sermon on the Mount, that um, the whole Sermon on the Mount is filled with these kinds of impossibilities. That's the point of it, all right? So Jesus says, never lust. Love your enemies. Don't ever pray with ulterior motives. Don't worry about tomorrow. And in case you missed the whole point about all of this is impossible, right smack in the middle of all that, he says, be perfect, as perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the number one thing to know about this is this too is impossible to always do this right. So now Jesus adds, now don't keep judging. Now why is that impossible? Dick Meyer, who uh, wrote the book, Why We Hate Us, said this, we're either judgmental or brain dead. It's an essential part of being human. We're actually hardwired to make quick decisions about situations and people. It's not in the prefrontal cortex where you think through things and you make a rational decision. Your judgmentalism more comes from the limbic portion of your brain, which is your emotional reaction. So you see someone, you see something, and you're actually hardwired to make a judgment about that person almost immediately, to either withdraw or go toward that person. 
So this is almost involuntary to judge. And one of the worst areas in which we constantly judge is we judge people who are judgmental. Have you noticed that? Like, why are you judging me? That's a judgmental statement. So either we try not to judge, and then we see people who are judging, and we judge them, or we see behaviors, and instinctively we say, like, I'm afraid of that, I'm afraid of that person, or I've had experience with that kind of person, and like we're hardwired to do this. And yet Jesus is saying, this is the standard I'm setting up before you don't keep judging. So don't miss this irony now. In the very act of judging anyone, even those who judge too harshly, you are judging. I love the way Paul explains this, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 and 2. So he's got this great passage in Romans 1, which is well known, and it's all about how the wrath of God has descended upon the earth toward all those who are far away from God. And he gives you this whole litany of examples about people who misuse their sexuality, about teenagers who are disobedient to their parents, about people who misuse, you know, a drink or, you know, all sorts of sins that he gives. And in all of them, he's going like, these are the sins of them. And you're saying, yes, Paul, yes, yes, they're so terrible. And then he gets to chapter 2 and he says, now you, you who judge them, you're doing the same thing. So like you can't win on this topic. It is actually impossible never to judge. So why does Jesus give not one example, don't keep judging, but a whole sermon full of impossible decrees? And the answer is it's for your humility And it's for your holiness. It's for your humility so that you know how desperately you need the grace of God. And Jesus isn't going to say, like, I'm going to give you this simple stuff. Like, if you haven't actually murdered anybody with a knife, then you're good to go. No, I'm going to go deep down into your motives and heart, your thoughts. And I'm going to keep telling you the things, one right after the other, that are just going to remind you, you're no better than anyone else. You're just differently broken, differently sinful. And part of this is for your humility. He's deliberately setting up a higher standard. But the second thing that Jesus is doing is for your holiness because he never wants you to be satisfied where you are as if to say, well, I've gotten on rungs one, two, and three so I can quit trying. Jesus says, no, there's always more ways in which you can strive for holiness. I always want you to grow in your likeness to me And that's why he gives us these words on judging. Because it's true, out of our sinfulness, our brokenness, we can't ever stop doing this completely, but we can take some steps in the direction of doing this rightly. So out of humility, then, our goal is greater holiness. So let me come back to where I started, where my Thursday morning guys told me not to start. The fact that the word margaritas or pearls, is in this passage, prompted me to attempt to do something maybe even a little bit more difficult than bringing margaritas into a Sunday morning sermon. Let's talk about alcohol a little bit. Let's talk about alcohol consumption. Let's talk about you and whatever you drink. Now, I could have taken a lot of different examples to apply this, these principles of not Uh, judging and the discernment that's here and the accountability. I could have taken sex or social media or justice and poverty or environmentalism or anger management or wealth and greed. I could have picked a lot of different areas. But margaritas prompted me to pick on alcohol today. So the extremes in terms of perception about alcohol are visible in our society and are long and deep. 
There's the extreme that is prohibition, absolute, you know, teetotaling. No drink at all. It's all evil. It's all sin. And in case you didn't know this, not only is uh, there a strong tradition of prohibition in America, but it's also in our church history as well. So I've done a good bit of research about our church. And at the same time the prohibition movement was growing in the 19th century and early 20th century, the pastors and particularly the women, as far as I can tell, at Corinth Church were, uh, were, were really on the same bandwagon. Like all, all alcohol is wrong, it's evil. The reason we still don't use alcohol in communion is because at that point certain traditions, including ours, said we can't be guilty of, in any way of manufacturing, selling, or distributing alcoholic beverages. It's all wrong. Uh, I hope you won't mind my saying so. Joe Rouse, Joe Rouse back there, and he's got a... Uh, a family Bible back in the Rao Welcome Center, and I was paging through it one time, and there is page after page after page in the Rao family Bible about uh, the, the family genealogy and marriages and deaths and all of that. And there's page, this page called the Temperance Pledge, which is I, I promise never to drink and never to participate in the alcohol sales and distribution. And in the Rao family Bible, nobody signed it. So I'm just saying there was pushback even at that time, but I can tell you that Jeremiah Ingold and Joseph Murphy and the early pastors of Corinth Church would have preached about the evils of alcohol, and I was raised in that tradition as well. So there's one tradition on the one hand that says, like, this is always bad, it's always evil, don't touch it, don't get close to it, it ruins lives, it destroys people. But it seems to me that we've swung the pendulum to the opposite side in our culture, and maybe particularly because of a misunderstanding of what Jesus means by do not judge. He's like, don't judge me about my use of alcohol. Like, it's nowhere in the Bible does it say not to drink, and so I can drink if I want to. I can drink whatever I want to. Like, don't judge me about what I drink. And so some of that's out in the culture, but it's also in the church as well. And I want to ask the question, what would it look like to address the beautiful balance that Jesus gives us about our relationships with one another in the body of Christ when it comes to alcohol. Now, full disclosure for those of you that don't know, I don't drink. Uh, and, and the reason that I do is not because the Bible says don't drink. I don't think the Bible says that. It's more because I was raised in that tradition, and by the time I started sampling it, I thought it was any variety of alcohol was the worst thing I'd ever tasted. And Bob's basic philosophy is why would you pay perfectly good money for something that tastes so bad? I'm just saying. So, uh, but, so what do we do with this now? Because in this room, we're going to have a mix of people uh, that don't drink at all, and we're going to have people that uh, drink socially and in moderation, and we're going to also have a group of people sitting right within the sound of my voice who are among those who abuse this uh, this beverage, whatever it happens to be. So let's talk about you and your margarita or whatever it is. When is picking up that drink something that God has given to you for your enjoyment? And it's a good thing. God created these grapes, whatever it is that we use. God created this fruit. He designed for it to be used well. And in the Bible, often there are many, many examples of alcoholic beverage of wine being used for enjoyment, for uh, social interaction, for relaxing yourself. Like there's, it doesn't say never do this. But when does it turn to abuse? And when you notice that it's turning to abuse of alcohol by someone else, when do you say something? 
When do you say something about the binge drinker? When do you say something about the person who's giving alcohol unwisely to minors or others who are not yet ready to handle those decisions on their own? When do you say something about people who are at a party and you know repeatedly they lose their inhibition when they drink, they flirt too much, they say too much, they say the wrong things, and they hardly remember it the next day? And when do you say something to someone who is drinking to the extent that it's destroying their relationships at work or at home? And how would Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7 apply to this? Let me go back to my three basic points. Number one, before you ever confront someone about this or anything else, examine your pattern. Don't keep judging. So if you come from a tradition like mine, your, your first instinct, and it was for years, which was, was to assume the worst about somebody who had a glass of wine at the table or had a six-pack in their cart at the grocery store. So Jesus is saying, don't keep judging. You're never ready to help someone deal with their drinking problem as long as you think that everybody who ever tastes alcohol is automatically evil. So don't keep judging. It's taken me a long time to learn not to assume the worst about people. So if you have the habit of saying too much, too often, about too many things, not only will people turn you, turn you off and tune you out, but the judgmentalism that you give to them is certain to boomerang back to you. So that's Jesus' number one. If you're going to talk to somebody about their use of alcohol, then examine your pattern, particularly your pattern of judging. Second, he says, examine your hypocrisy. So before you can say something to someone else who you see as having a significant problem with the abuse of alcohol, you better check your own use of alcohol and how appropriate it is. Even if you believe you use alcohol responsibly in the right settings and it's under control and you never drink and drive and you, know, you don't say inappropriate things, you better ask somebody else who's close to you what they think about your pattern of alcohol use. And then you need to ask yourself, when and why do I have to have a drink? And are there times where there may be someone else who is really struggling with their own abuse of alcohol, but it's your party and you just had to have the drink there, or you had to have a drink in your hand when you were at someone else's party, not thinking about the impact that you might actually have on someone else. So Jesus is saying, examine your hypocrisy, or maybe it's not even alcohol. Maybe it's binge eating or out-of-control spending. Before you're ready to confront someone about their abuse in this area, you better take seriously the need to examine your own life and your heart. And it's not that you never do. It's not that you can become perfect before you uh, confront someone else, but it's that you have to take that deep step of self-examination or, again, your words will not be heard. And then, finally, examine your motive. So why am I confronting this person at this time? Confrontation about any issue will almost never be effective if it's spontaneous. If it's like, I'm just tired of this, I'm going to say something to you. So it has to be planned and prayed through. You don't nail the binge drinker with a drink in his hand or when she's wrenching her head over a toilet, right? That's not the moment. That's casting your pearls before swine. It's an unholy uh, moment, and it's not the right time to say something. But if you're doing it for the right reason, a proper concern for someone's self-destruction, you can then wait patiently for the right moment. Ask the right questions when someone is... Um, 
when you're confronting someone about alcohol abuse. How serious is the problem? How close is my relationship? And is this the right moment to say what needs to be said? So to confront is not to condemn or to judge. It may be the kindest thing that you ever did to someone to say, I see some things here that I really need to talk to you about because I love you and because I'm your friend. And you won't always do it perfectly. This is impossible to do perfectly. But do it anyway because you're in a community where accountability is required of people in the body of Christ that we discern and then we do confront in the right way at the right time. Jesus came into our world, um, we call it his incarnation. The American impulse is separation, not incarnation. It's like, I don't like you, I don't like your habits, I don't like what you're doing, so I'm not going to be around you. Jesus did exactly the opposite. He went to those who were most broken and wounded and needy and whose behaviors were most likely to separate them from God and others. Jesus went to them and he loved them. It was a huge risk. But the gospel approach is we're like Jesus. We are people of incarnation who even risk um, the retribution, who risk the boomerang. But we love one another too much to not say anything when there's a sin that might destroy someone. Let's pray together. Our Father, open our hearts and minds not to Pastor Bob, not to this sermon, but to the Holy Spirit of God. And where you have put your finger on something someone that we need to do about our own lives, or you've put your, the face of someone into our hearts and minds who really is destroying themselves by the abuse of alcohol or something else. Give us the grace and the courage and the love to say the right thing at the right time and trust you with the results. We ask in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, <clears throat> our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.